Why do you want to go to heaven? Obviously, I'm assuming that everybody wants to go to heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven? Personally, if you had to answer that question, what makes heaven appealing to you? Now, there are many options. You might say, well, I'm, I, I want to go to heaven because I want to be in a place where there's no death. There's no mourning for the dead. There's no crying. There's no pain. You might say, well, I want to go to heaven because I have loved ones who've died. And I, I know that they're there. And I'm looking forward to being with them again. And not in some sort of mystical, spiritual fog of a personality. But, but a returning to, to a true, fullest, genuine relationship with my loved ones. More full than anything I ever knew here. And I'm looking forward to that. You might say, oh, I'm looking forward to heaven because I need rest from all my earthly labors, and I'm looking forward to that. Or you might say, well, I'm just ready to be finished with this war against sin. These are some of the reasons that people might want to go to heaven. They might desire heaven, and they are biblical things about heaven that the Bible teaches us about heaven. And when we, we begin to analyze some of these things, we, we could ask, are all of these reasons equally appropriate? Are they acceptable reasons to desire to enter into heaven? Are, are any of these things absolutely inappropriate? Is there, is there a sense in which if someone said, well, I'm, I'm longing to be with my loved ones, we would say that is absolutely wrong. You must put that out of your mind. That has nothing to do with heaven. Are any of these absolutely inappropriate? What makes heaven appealing to you? Really, think about it. What is it? For some people, it might just be the mystery of, of, of uh, being able to see this place that has captured the imaginations of people from literally the foundation of the world. What is it? What if you could have all of these things? No death, no, no mourning, no crying, no pain. See your loved ones, rest from earthly labors, finish from the war against sin. What if you could have, have all of those things for all of eternity, go to a place that's not hell, have all of these things, and yet God would not be there. And His people would not be there. Would you, would you still be okay with that? Why do you want to go to heaven? Remember, that's what we're looking at here in, in Revelation 21. It's, it's heaven. We might refer to it as the eternal state or the glorified state. But it's, it's heaven. This is what the Christians know as heaven. And to add, add substance to those titles, the eternal state or the glorified state or heaven as a location or a place, we're, we're considering specifically the church triumphant. That is, this is what heaven is for the people of God. It is the people of God with their God. And it is the God of the people with His people. Us with Him and He with us. The absence of all curse. The presence of all perfection. That is heaven as the Bible sets it forth. There is a sense in which we could say there is no heaven apart from God. Whatever place you might describe that could contain all of these good things, if God's not there, it's not heaven. At the same time, we could say, whatever place you might describe that, that contains all of these great things, if the people of God 
are not there, it's not heaven. Heaven is described as the people of God and God together for eternity. The church triumphant, the church glorified, the church victorious. We've seen the church set forth as a heavenly city. We notice the structure and strength of this city in verses 9 to 14. Then we looked at the measurements and the materials of this heavenly city in verses 15 to 21. That was last Lord's Day. Today we get to see the glory of this city. The glory of the heavenly city. The glory of the church triumphant. The glory of heaven, however you want to say it. Glory is defined as brightness or luster or splendor. It's a visible display of some intrinsic value. We might say glory is is practically synonymous in that basic sense with beauty. 1 Corinthians 11, the woman's hair is her glory. It's that thing that God gave her to show the intrinsic beauty of a woman. So we're not talking about glory in that strictest theological sense as it pertains to the essence of God, although that is related. The the beauty of heaven, the beauty of this city, the the brightness of it. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 6.29, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one lily in the field. What was he saying? He said, you go back and look at Solomon in his royal majesty, decked out as a king with all of his attendants, with his houses of gold, all of his wisdom, everything that you could observe about King Solomon, which made up what we would consider the grandeur of King Solomon, all of that put together is not to be compared with the beauty and the splendor of a single flower. Another text that's a little closer to the point, we we looked at in 1 Samuel 4. The Ark of the Covenant's been captured. The wife of Phinehas says, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. You remember the error. They were associating the Ark, the symbol of the glory, with the glory itself. But the truth about the Ark was it it was the place of God's presence. It was a, a thing that they could look at and see that reminded them God's presence dwelt there. It was something visible. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple was being dedicated, it says that the priest came out of the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. The cloud was the glory. Now that again moves into that closer closer to that notion of the, the essence of God and, and His glory, essentially. But the, cl- the cloud was a created, visible symbol of God's presence. It's something they could see that reminded them that God was there. When Peter spoke of the transfiguration of Christ, he refers to that glory cloud that was manifest on the mountain there. And he says the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. The majestic glory being God... But it was specifically there, God coming down in a visible manifestation. So there are many ways that we could think of the term glory, but most simply, and this is the way that I want to think about it this morning, glory is the visible, observable manifestation of majesty and beauty. So what is the glory of the heavenly city? What makes it beautiful? What about this heavenly city makes it delightful and attractive. Why would anybody want to be here? Why does anybody want to go there? Now we 
Again, there are lots of reasons, and we, we would probably say that most people just want heaven because they don't want the other option. But how, how does the Bible describe heaven in such a way that makes it attractive to us? What is its glory? What's its beauty? What, what's its luster? What's its splendor? The text answers the question in three ways. First, its glory absolutely. Secondly, its glory derivatively. And then thirdly, its glory negatively. So first... It's glory, absolutely. And when we're dealing with something absolutely, we're considering it apart from any dependence or relation to any other thing. Absolute means there are no, limit, no limitations, no qualifications, no restrictions, no conditions. And so this would be the pure, unassociated glory of the heavenly city. The, the beauty of the city in its source we could say, without restriction, without qualification, just the, the absolute pure beauty, the absolute pure unqualified source of glory for the heavenly Jerusalem is God Himself. But the way that God's described here is to put Him in the place of some other options for sources of glory. And the first is the temple. In verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city. Now again, think of something visible that you can see that manifests worth or value as, as glory. The city of Jerusalem was the home of the temple. The, the temple represented the glory of that nation, which was the dwelling place of God. Israel as a nation, Jerusalem as the capital, were not in themselves anything glorious the thing which rendered them glorious was God's sovereign purpose to make His name to dwell in their midst. And that was what the temple represented. God is here. When Solomon built the temple, 2 Chronicles 2.6, he says, But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before Him. And so there we see the purpose of a temple. It was a representative house. Solomon knew that God's not contained in here. It's not like He comes and goes from this place, like He sleeps here and then He goes out to work. This place is not to contain God, but God would give His special presence to dwell in that temple, in the midst of His people. And so the temple was a symbol which rep represented the heavenly dwelling place of God come down amongst His people. It was a representative house, but it was also a place to make offerings. The temple was the special place of worship, and worship was done performed primarily through sacrifices and offerings. So the point of the temple was that God had mercifully condescended to make His habitation amongst this nation, specifically in their temple. But because the people, like us, were inherently sinful, even their worship had to be conducted all of the time by means of sacrifice, through blood. There had to be atonement constantly being made if God is going to remain in the midst of this people. And so they worshipped by obeying the prescriptions and submitting themselves to this method, knowing that without the shedding of blood, they would remain under condemnation and God would depart. So the temple 
is a concession on God's part. It's, it's a, a condescension. He comes and He says, I'll lend my presence to this place. At the same time, it was a submission on the part of the people to come and worship God in obedience through sacrifices. That was the temple. Now, skipping over all the redemptive, redemptive historical movement of these types in the present age, we jump straight to our text here and, and we ask, what is the glory of this heavenly city? What's the status of her temple? I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. When he says, I saw no temple, what he said is, I, I didn't see a physical structure that I could describe as a temple. He, he's, he, in what he sees, he recognizes some relation to Jerusalem. But this is a Jerusalem unlike any Jerusalem that had ever existed. For the church triumphant, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. God is there. So there's no need for some symbolic condescension on God's part. He's there. And the Lamb is there. So there's no need for sacrifices to God. The Lamb of God is already there. We will come immediately into the presence of God. We come to God, not to a temple. We will come immediately through Christ, not through sacrifices, even though Christ's sacrifice will forever perfume the celestial city. In this heavenly city, there are none who do not come directly to God, and there are none who come by any other way than by Christ the Lamb. The glory of this city is God Himself, absolutely. This city is shaped like the most holy place we saw, the dwelling of God. This heavenly Jerusalem is not a city built around a temple whose innermost room is the place of God's rest. This heavenly Jerusalem is a city which is entirely the place of God's eternal rest. That's the glory of the city. God is there. And that's why in Ezekiel's vision of this city, he says... The name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. How would you describe it? The Lord is there. Well, what does it look like? The Lord is there. Well, how do you get there? The Lord is there. That's what it is. That's the, the, the absolute glory is the presence of God Himself. And then we, we see this glory described another way in terms of light. Now this does take a little bit more time to convey... We've already heard a little bit about light, so I'm just going to keep, keep running with that. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now remember, this vision is not given to us so that we can imagine the, the, the shape of it, the, 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 the character of actual heavenly orbs and, and things like that. It, it is, is a symbolic picture to teach us of God dwelling with His people. So whether or not the eternal home of the glorified saints actually has a physical sun or moon is not even being addressed here. That's not the point. And, and it actually doesn't even say there's no sun or moon. It says they don't have a need for it. The state of the heavenly city is described using the language of sun and moon and physical light. Again, 
think with me here. What's the purpose of light? Why do we need light? Light is how we know things about the world around us. Light is how we see. Light manifests to us shapes, colors, placement, distinction, proximity of of any object that is in near relation to us. If you see an angle or, or the shape of anything, it's because of light. They're, they're actually, they've actually developed uh, blacks, the color black, that are so black, you can't see shadow on it. You can't see shape. It just looks like a hole. There's nothing there. Because there's light, we see shape and form to everything. By light, I can see a red ball on the ground rising above the green grass four feet in front of me. And because I have light, I can conduct myself rightly. I can avoid that ball. I don't step on it and and fall. Reality is perceived by light. By physical light, we know physical things. Now, all of that is assumed throughout the Scriptures with regard to spiritual light, spiritual sight. By spiritual light, we know spiritual things, as we just heard. Spiritual light in Scripture is the revelation of God to men so that man can know his God. That's the the purpose of spiritual light. By spiritual light and through spiritual light, the people of God come to know God and then learn how to measure themselves and their world in light of this God. It's, it's knowledge of who He is that then illuminates everything. The spiritual light, revelation, or by spiritual light and spiritual sight, we might call that illumination, we learn to conduct ourselves rightly in the world because we know God. We've come to a knowledge of God. So light is revelation from God leading to an understanding and knowledge of God. It's like this, in a circle. It comes to us right back to Him. And this is why we read of Christ in John 1, 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's the source of spiritual life and light and revelation of God. To to come to spiritual life, to be raised to life, is to know God. It's to have a a light, a a knowledge of God, an understanding of God. John 1.9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming in the world, but, John 1.10, the world did not know Him. The light came, but because they rejected Him, they didn't know Him. On the other hand, verse 14, John says, we have seen His glory. The light came and it worked so that we then were able to see Him. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Light comes and then we see. That was the point of the coming of Christ as we just heard, so that we might know God. In Jesus Christ, we have the revelation of God to men. And by Christ, through faith, sinful, ignorant men can come to see and know God. In the Bible, light in the spiritual sense, always leads to the knowledge of God. That's what it is. Knowledge of God then turns to help us illuminate everything else. Everything makes sense now because everything that exists, exists beneath the reality of God. Light comes from God, shines on God, reveals God, teaches us of God so that we might know Him. John 17, 3, This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
So in a sense, we've already been given this spiritual light and spiritual sight. We've come to know God. We've come to know God in Christ. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that now. But what's the glory of this city? What makes it so stunning? The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Again, light is revelation and knowledge of God. What's a lamp? A lamp is a means of holding up the light. It's the means of dispensing the light itself. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, like this. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. When He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him. It's the sight of Him that changes us. And we ask, how can that be? How can men see God? Because He's going to be there. God will be there. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. He's the source of light. He is the light itself. He's the one revealed by the light. Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. And that is even His own self-revelation. It comes out of Him and comes back to Him. So that in glory, all reality is perceived, understood, and measured by the glory of God shining from the lamp who is Jesus Christ. And all that can be known will be known rightly and truly. Now that's not glorious to many people because they think they already know everything rightly and truly. But just think of this. In in glory there will be no more cloudy thinking or clouded judgments. No more wrong thoughts about God. And even uh, no more... We understand this. Even as regenerate men, men, we have a tendency still in us to suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. Then that will stop. No more suppressing the truth. We will not know all that there is to know about God, but all that we can know, we will know. Rightly, fully, completely, clearly. All you've got wrong about Him right now, set right in an instant. And all that you do have right about Him, raised to a glorified state of of knowledge and comprehension of God. Even now we have light. And we know and we increase in knowledge by grace through faith then we will have knowledge by His light and through sight we'll know God. What makes this city so glorious? Why is it so beautiful? Why is it so splendid? Why should anybody want to be there? There's no temple. God's the temple. There's no need of light. God is the light. The Lord is there. The absolute, pure, unqualified source of glory in the heavenly Jerusalem is God. He's what makes her lovely. He is the source of her Glory and majesty. But then secondly, we have its glory derivatively. So something that is derived is exactly not absolute. Derived glory is not independent and intrinsic glory. It's a glory that's bestowed from that absolute source. There is a glory to this heavenly city that's derived. That is, it certainly is a manifestation of the majesty 
and beauty of the city. It certainly makes the city attractive. It's desirable to us because of this. And yet, even this glory is an extension of that absolute glory we've already seen, which is the glory of God. This derived glory is found in the people who make up the city. Verses 24 to 26, it's by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. By its light the nations will walk. To walk is to conduct yourself, your, your manner of life. So this is not literally addressing how people will be able to see their way through the heavenly city. This is describing the revelation those people in the heavenly Jerusalem will have by which they conduct themselves. As we've seen, in the glorified state, all reality is perceived, understood, and measured by the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ and that completely and truly. So all manner of conduct is going to be carried out before the face of God immediately. We live before God's face now. And there it will be conducted perfectly, fully, in the full light and knowledge of who He is. But notice who's doing this walking. Several phrases. There's the nations. Then they're referred to as the glory of the kings of the earth. And then it's the glory and honor of the nations. Now throughout the Bible, nations, you'll remember, is not, not meant to reference a specific geopolitical entity as such, but as people's from all over the world, from every people group, all ethnic groups of people, the nations. It says the glory of the kings of the earth and the kings bringing their glory and honor. The focus here is not a reference to what we would call governments or, or rulers, again, as such. It's the glory of the kings of the earth. What is the glory of the kings of the earth? Proverbs 14, 28. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. It's people. What are we seeing here? The people of God with their God. The God of the people with His people. So when we read that the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory into the heavenly Jerusalem, the point is that the glory which was delegated to mediated human authority structures is now relinquished back to God. There's a relinquishing of power. The civil rule instituted after the fall is returned back in a direct immediate way back to God. There, there is no authority. There is no power except God Himself. Peoples which had been scattered across time and places under human authorities are now gathered under Christ. And those who once stood in a short-lived and delegated manner as the glory of human rulers now stand as the glory of the King of Kings. In a multitude of people is the glory of a King. Here we have a multitude that no man can number from every tribe and language and people and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now how does this display the glory of the heavenly city? We say, well, I, I see big groups of people everywhere. How, how does this manifest some, some inherent majesty? Redeemed people from all nations will be an everlasting testimony to the saving power of God in Christ Jesus. Even now, anyone who performs a an act of bravery in battle receives a medal of honor that stands as a testimony to what they did. A local citizen might have a plaque in their name placed on the wall in town hall so that for generations people could see that person's name and remember what they did. Statues are erected of men 
whose actions reverberate down through the generations and so that their memory is, is preserved and kept for all that would be affected by their labors. Don't forget these men who've gone, who've gone before you and have done A, B, and C so that you can continue living. These are visible symbols of one's honor. These are the glories of men. You look at them and they point to men. Now, picture this multitude that no man can number from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every one of them was born a son or daughter of Adam. Each and every one of them by nature a rebel and an enemy of God. Each and every one of them born under the curse of sin and destined for eternal death. And yet here they stand. They're no longer in Adam. They're in Christ. They're sons of the Most High God. They are now by glorified nature, friends of God, lovers of God, loved by God. There no longer remains any curse over their heads, nor any effect of the previous curse. This is like it didn't even happen. In their glorified state, they suffer no decay. But their bodies and souls will remain in that perfected condition forever and ever and ever for millions and millions and millions of years. Now, how did that change take place? How did they go from what they were to what they are? What's the power behind this multitude? How did they get here and how do they continue? And you can almost imagine one of these look to another. And he says, how is it that we've endured so many millions of years here as if they were a moment? Could, uh, could you remind me of what it is? And that one turns and points to the man Christ Jesus and says... Him. Him. Haven't you noticed those scars on His hands and feet? We don't have any. He has scars. It was Him. He lived for us. He died for us. He lived to make intercession so that we would come to be glorified. And even now, it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. It's by Him who is the life and the light that we continue for these millions of years. You see, that's a testimony not to us, but to the virtue of Christ, the power, infinite power, the people are the glory. They stand there, not glorying in themselves, but a testimony to Him. In Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The glory of this people will be like the stars of heaven forever and ever and ever, glowing with majesty and glory. Hebrews 3.3, 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. A house might look spectacular. You don't walk up to the house and pat it and say, good job, You're, you are doing it. I like what you just hang out right there. You're doing a great... You don't do that. The house is the glory of the builder. It's manifesting something in the builder. 
Those exact same building supplies cut and painted in the exact same way, laying in a pile, that doesn't, re- that doesn't resound to very much glory for the so-called builder. The house stands as a visible symbol of the wisdom and the craft of the builder. Now it's amazing that any man could take wood and screws and bricks and sheetrock and shingles and they can make a beautiful house, those, especially those houses that just catch our eye. And we just say, look at that. Somebody built that. Somebody came up with that idea in their mind, drew it on paper, and built it. That, that is an astonishing thing. But he did it using useful materials. He did it using materials that had already been made specifically for the purpose of building that house. In building the heavenly Jerusalem, Jesus Christ has not been given materials which were already prepared to be or to build something glorious. God in and through Jesus Christ is making a glorified community out of rebels. Crooked, knotty, rotting wood. Sheetrock left out in the rain for decades. Rounded out screws with flattened thread. Shingles littered with holes. Worthy to be discarded. What's this for? That needs to be hauled off. When I go to Lowe's, especially if I have something from my house, I'm, I'm picking through the wood and I'm looking at it to make sure I want, I want the pieces that are straight. I want the best pieces because this is going in my house. But that's not what God has done. In His love and His mercy, His wisdom, His power, God has taken what was despised and foolish and weak and wretched and He's making His house, His dwelling place. This is my house. And He does that with sinners. How much more glory has He from this heavenly city and its people than the greatest earthly architect in the world, the greatest palace that's ever been built. Somebody went and hewed those stones out to make them usable. God uses the weak. God uses sinners. The people who make up this city are glorious, but it's a derived glory. It comes from Jesus Christ. It turns back to the praise of His glorious Grace, it's His house, and it's a glorious house. Not because He used the best materials, but because it's being built by the best of saviors. The Lord Jesus, it's His glory. It'll, it'll reverberate to Him for all of eternity. And then thirdly, we see its glory negatively. In verse 27, very often glory is found in what is absent. The glory of a precious metal or a precious stone is found in the absence of defect and blemish. And so here we see in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Literally nothing common will be found in the the heavenly Jerusalem. Only that which has been set apart as holy to the Lord will find its way into the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There will be no evil doers there. No one who does what is detestable or false. That means the absence of some people you love right now. That more than likely means the absence of some of the people in this room. They're not going to be there. That's its glory. It's hard for us to imagine that. That in this day, the absence of these people will be to the glory of this city. All will be holy. All will be fitted for God. Those who you know now, who you love now, who do not know Christ, if they were to be found having snuck their way into this holy city and you saw them, you would be the first to cry out, Get them out! 
They're corrupting the holy city. They are an offense to God in this place. Remove them. It would be hard for us to imagine the, the great horror that a devout Jew would have felt when Antiochus Epiphanes built a statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. They're desecrating the house of Yahweh. Now glorify that horror and multiply it by a multitude that no man could number. And you might be, be able to comprehend the rage that would fill the heavenly Jerusalem if your lost loved one was spotted there. They're desecrating the house of Yahweh. Remove them. A little bit of that zeal that, that inflamed Phineas. Get them out. Only the redeemed will be there. Only those whose names were written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. And this stands as another warning to those in this, these congregations and our congregation. When we begin to hear these siren calls of Babylon wooing us, we begin to weigh these options and consider the, the thought of maybe abandoning the Christians in order to preserve our temporal lives. We, we start to think, well, if I continue with these people and I, if I continue in this faith, it's going to cost me here and here and here. And if I just go this way, I'll have all of these things. And he's saying, if you flee to find a place of refuge in the city of man, you will have no place in the city of God. The glory of that city, negatively speaking, is that there is nothing common or unclean. There's no sinner there. How much vexation and hardship in this world is the product of men who are detestable and do what's false. We would say the great majority of it. How many times in our conversations here concerning the affairs that we face in our daily lives in the workplace, in the, in the civil sphere, at the store, raising our children, whatever it might be, how many times do we come to the conclusion, whether we explicitly state it or we all feel it burning in our breast, the ways of men are saturated with inconsistency and arbitrariness. Men's ideas fail. They always drift to calling what is good evil and what is evil good. The hardships that we see coming down the pike in our nation are directly due to wicked men. Now knowing that, we can look forward to this city. No such men will be there. We ought to pity such men now. We ought to be reminded that if it were not for God's amazing grace, we would be forever banished from His presence. We would have no place in this city. This will be a glorious city. Absolutely glorious because God is there. Derivatively glorious because God's people are there. And negatively glorious because nothing unclean will ever enter this city. Now, let's make some applications out of this. Once again, based on the fact that what we're seeing here is not something altogether separate from what God has already begun to do in His people at the present time, here and now. The, the powers of the age to come have already broken into the here and now. We are the new creation in Christ, and Christ, by His Spirit, is now building the church into a dwelling place for God. Already, but not yet. There's still more, but it's already begun. So, something of this glory, in some sense, should characterize the people of God now. Something of this should characterize the church now. Not fully, but something. So, 
Think about this. The presence of God is the glory of the heavenly Jerusalem. Is that the way that we think of the church now? Is that the way we think of this church now? Think, think local. There are a lot of people today who want the glory of the church to be manifested in a thousand different ways. The, they want the visible manifestation of greatness to be manifested in, in buildings. A bunch of ministries or a bunch of different programs. This is our glory. This is how people know that we are great. We have this. We do this. Men glory in titles. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are reformed. That's our glory. We, we, want, we want to be known as the reformed church. We glory very often in confessions and confessionalism. Glory in connections that we might have with groups or popular men or celebrities. I know this man and I know that man. These are the types of things that we want to glory in by nature. What makes this church beautiful to you as a, as a, a shadow of that heavenly Jerusalem? What makes it the place you want to be? Is it those types of carnal things? Or is it God is there? God is there. You say, well, how would we know? Well, I'd say, I know for a fact it's not feelings or emotionalism. God is a personal God. He's not a gas that makes you feel giggly or silly. He's a person. How do you know when a particular person shows up, especially God? How do you know if He's, if he's there? The glory of a church where God is in their midst will be manifested in humility, conviction of sin, and a production of true, practical holiness. When God is present... You don't glory in men. When God is present, sin is not tolerated. When God is present, people walk in holiness and in the fear of the Lord because He's there. And there are many churches who have the appearance of godliness and the appearance of God's presence, but they disprove the reality that they claim because their lives deny the power of God. They glory in men. God showed up today. How do you know? Well, so-and-so preached. Whatever. The glory in men. They continue in their sin. God was there. Well, how do you know? Well, I just felt really comfortable in a room full of people still living the same sins that they've been living for the past 20 years. There's no pursuit of holiness. God was there. How do you know? Well, we all left and went right back to the same lives that we lived when we walked in. But yet, God was there. God showed up. That's not God. God is there, producing humility, conviction of sin, producing holiness. The glory of God is manifested in light. Is there any growing knowledge of God? Any, any evidence in anybody in this room that there is an increase in the fear of God? You say, well, I, I like this church, or I love this church. Well, is it because when you come here, you're forced to deal with God? Or is it because you leave still comfortable in your same sins? Do you, you love this church because you leave with a greater motivation to search the Scriptures, to be examined by God, to deal with your own sins? And do you find those types of things attractive? Do you recognize that's what I, my soul needs? I must have that. Is that what you see as attractive or beautiful in the church? God's people is the glory of the city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Is a place where God's people resound to His glory. 
So any church where God is glorified, where there is the presence of God, there will be people there and a, a people who love the Lord. Hearts will be knit together, not in fleshly things, but in spiritual things. There's nothing wrong and everything right with loving the people of God. But we also have to be clear that what makes them lovely is not in them alone, but it's what God just keeps doing through them. You're able to see God working in them. You're able to experience God's working through them in you. You recognize God is using these people to glorify Himself. Now that doesn't mean that we don't share earthly things in common, but those are all going to be secondary to the shared Holy Spirit. We ought to be able to say, when I'm around those people, when I've been around those people, I'm not drawn away from God. I'm actually pushed towards God. When I'm around those people, I'm reminded that there's more than just this world. There's more than the things we see in this world. Is that what you love about the church? Do you love that? Thirdly, the absence of the unclean is the glory of the city. Now, obviously, we would say sin is going to be removed, even though we have to endure its presence now in, in, in some form. In that place, there will be no sin. But I want us to think of this just in terms of that, the literal sense of that word common. Nothing common will enter the heavenly Jerusalem, which means only that which is holy and sacred and consecrated to God will be there. Does your life reflect that reality? at the present time. I'm not asking if your life is rife with open, obvious, unrepentant sin that everybody would look and say, well, I don't want to be like that person. That person's clearly worldly. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about this consecration. Is there any sense at any point in your life where you have given yourself to the Lord. You, you view your life as consecrated now. Is any part of your time personally consecrated to the Lord? Any of it? Do you recognize God is the owner of my time? He's given it to me. We'll see tonight. He's given us several different things to do. But some of it is consecrated to Him. Period. It's His time. Specifically. Do you, do you view it that way? Think about your possessions, the things that you have. You go to your house and just look around. All the stuff that you have. Do you see your stewardship of your earthly wealth as something to be consecrated to the Lord? Or is that your stuff? Is there any concept of consecration? Think of the people that you interact with. Is there any way, any, any sense in which you approach personal relationships as something that, that is to be devoted to God for His use? That there, there is no throwaway conversation. They're, they're consecrated. What natural gifts and talents do you have and are you using them in any way as a service to God? When providence opens up doors of an, of an unplanned opportunity, extra money, free time, do you immediately assume these things are mine? These things are for me to selfishly consume on myself because after all, they were not planned, they were not prepared for, then they must be mine to, to freely use as I wish. Or do you consider how these things might function in the service to God and His glory? 
In the eternal state, all is holy. All is consecrated to God. We pretend that we want to be there. We imagine that this holiness is appealing and attractive to us, but how often do our present lives even begin to model or look like this kind of consecration? It's almost like we, we, we long for heaven because that, that's when we'll get serious about being holy unto the Lord. It's questions like these that force us to ask, why do I want to go to heaven? And I, and I, hope, that, I hope that you consider questions like that. It's very easy in a church like ours to just become professional sermon observers. And I don't want us to be that way. I want you to actually think. If not here, then at home. Think. Why do I want to go to heaven? Especially if the heavenly life is so foreign to any appetite that I have now, why do I want to be there? What draws me to it? Again, the answer for most is that deep down, they don't want to go to heaven because they don't want God. They don't want His people. They don't want His holiness in their lives. They don't really want it. Until you start talking about heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want that. And then they go back to living for themselves. They want heaven because it's not hell. Remember the demons were afraid that Christ had come to torment them before the time. The demons are afraid of hell. They're not looking forward to it. So if your appetite for heaven is just simply, I'm afraid of hell, well, you'll be in good company. You'll be with those demons who are just as terrified as you are. Now hopefully what this does, when you begin to think about this and and really get honest with yourself, is you realize, I've never wanted God. And you can't want God because He hates everything you love and He is everything you hate. You recognize that. You're utterly corrupt. You're unable to do anything about it. It's who you are. You are enmity with God. And you've got to recognize that. But if you'll come to Him... Through Christ, lay yourself out in submission at His feet and seek His redeeming power. He is willing and able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him. And that might be a prayer you have to pray. God in heaven, when I look at myself, I can't find any actual legitimate appetite for you. It's not there. I'm telling you it's not there. I need your light to shine so that I can have a sight so that I'll be drawn, so that I'll love, that I'll crave. You've got to be honest with, with, in that. Don't just pretend like the desire for heaven and all those good things we named at the beginning, don't pretend like that is the same as the desire to be with God. Those are not bad things. And the Scriptures do... They lay them out for us so that we would long for heaven. I want to be in a place where there's no more tears, where there's no more dying, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I'm ready for the former things to be passed away. I'm ready to be, to be done with my war against my own sin, but that's not the same as desiring God. Those things will be blessings that we'll get to. We want to be with God. Is that a true desire? Let's pray. Now, and let's trust that the Lord will help us to examine our hearts.